over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome to the show. Today, we are talking about two fashion lovers and not fashion lovers in the sense that they love fashion, but rather two lovers who work together in fashion. That these two lovers were both women in 1920s Britain, well, that makes their story all the more remarkable. From 1922 to 1926, Dorothy Todd and Madge Garland transformed British Vogue into a forum for the modernist avant-garde. As editor-in-chief and fashion editor, respectively, Dorothy and Madge worked together to mix high and low culture in a convergence of fashion with all the new and innovative art, literature, theater, and music. The magazine included work by some of the 20th century's greatest luminaries, including Pablo Picasso and Virginia Woolf, among many, many others. This is the standard formula for almost any fashion magazine today, but in the 1920s, this was a radically new concept. And also groundbreaking April... The magazine's subtle nuances and allusions to the queer subculture in which Dorothy, Madge, and many, many of the magazine's contributors ascribed. And I say subculture because this was not a time when people of the LGBTQ community were openly out and about, so to speak. Uh, The fact that these two women actually lived and worked as a couple in 1920s Britain is especially interesting when you consider the state of LGBTQ rights at this time. I mean, this is the same country, after all, where male homosexuality was a criminal offense. Mm. Most famously, perhaps, is the imprisonment of Oscar Wilde in 1895. He was found guilty of gross indecency (laughs) and sentenced to two years of hard labor after the court proved that he had participated in many a gay liaison. As a result of the Criminal Law Amendment Act, male homosexuality had been illegal since 1885, although it had really been long debated and legislated issue throughout the country's history. Yeah, and small sidebar, um, there's actually a film in theaters right now starring Rupert Everett called The Happy Prince that is actually about that period in Oscar Wilde's life. So check it out if you have not already. I want to see that. I know, I do too. It looks um, very good. Very sad, but very good. So, um, April, you mentioned that male homosexuality was illegal, but not female, mind you. Um, The attempt to amend that distinction came in 1921, uh, when various members of parliament attempted to add a clause to the criminal law amendment that would have made lesbianism a criminal offense. However, apparently this attempt was dropped because legislators were concerned that bringing attention to lesbians would somehow encourage women to become them themselves. Wow. You know that old homosexuality is a choice bit. Mm-hmm. How does the Lady Gaga song go, April? Baby, I was born this way. That's right. Although I do suppose I knew I love boys from a very young age. Um, I distinctively remember chasing one in particular around the school ground trying to kiss him. <laughs> and that actually um, puts me at the same age Madge was when she first fell in love at the dawn of the 20th century. Madge Alma McHarg was born in Melbourne, Australia in June of 1896 to parents Henrietta and Andrew McHarg. Her father had a successful wholesale business importing women's clothing and accessories from Great Britain and Europe and selling them all across Australia. 
When Madge was just two, he moved the family to England to be closer to the source of his products, um, which among many other things included, quote, millinery, straws, ready-to-wears, felts, flowers, ornaments, Paris novelties, ribbons, neckwear, veilings, laces, embroideries, handkerchiefs, <laughs> silks, velvets, mantles, blouses, hosiery, <laughs> underwear, and gloves. <laughs> Whew, that was a long one. <laughs> Basically, all the makings and trappings of a lady, April. And I mean, Madge was very much aware of the power and importance of dress from a very young age, thanks both to her father's business, but also her impeccably dressed mother. It's actually to fashion that Madge credits the distance between her mother and herself growing up because she distinctively remembers getting a bath from her nanny as a young girl and when her mother, who was dressed for the evening in a fabulous, I'm sure, silk and lace evening gown, she came to say goodbye and Madge, in the bath, runs out, soaking wet, happily to give her mother a hug and her mother immediately rebuffs her. So throughout her childhood, Madge could literally and figuratively not get close to her mother or really her father for that matter. And her upbringing was very typical of a middle to upper class child of means at this time. Her parents were fashionably aloof and she was basically raised by a nanny, but she was very educated. And, and you know, well, as much as her parents deemed appropriate for a girl to grow into a proper wife, we should say. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> and Madge craved education. She, she read everything every book that she could get her hands on. And it was at the very beginning of her education in kindergarten that Madge fell in love for the first time with a girl by the name of Nina Brown. And this was so close and endearing of a friendship that Madge still recalled it fondly decades later when she was attempting to write her memoir. Yeah, and while Nina was Madge's first love, she would not be her last because Madge fell in love again in her late teens when she met a girl by the name of Olga Queenie. And actually, another sidebar, April, is um, interesting is that Olga was the daughter of John Francis Queenie and Olga Mendez Monsanto Queenie. If that sounds familiar, <laughs> it's that Monsanto. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he founded the company in St. Louis, I guess, yeah. in 1901 and gave it his wife's maiden name. So huh. you learn something new every day. That's right. Um, but back to our story. Apparently, John's daughter was as captivating as her father was soon to become rich because Madge was smitten. And the two met while traveling to Melbourne um, together during World War I, but stayed in each other's intimacies and company pretty much off and on for the next few years. And after the war ended, Madge joined Olga in St. Louis for six months before the duo headed to England together. In her book, All We Know, Three Lives, Madge's biographer Lisa Cohen writes, quote, The slaughter of Madge's generation of young men in the war suspended and changed some of the pressure of the marriage market. And in the post-war years, many women set up households together, some out of economic necessity and others for companionship. For a few, sexual partnerships could be veiled by such arrangements. Madge and Ojolita, which I guess is her nickname for her, did not live together independent of their families, writes Cohen, but each was now the most important person in the other's life. For her research, Cohen went through Madge's personal papers, now in the collection of the Royal College of Art Archives, London. This not only provided much of the wonderful context within which she was able to paint the vivid picture of Madge and Olga's relationship, she also found images of the two women together, including one in which they have tea with a young gentleman by the name of Ewart, Madge's future husband. Wait, future husband? 
<laughs> yeah. So um, Ewart Garland was what one might call a family friend from Melbourne. He came to London during World War One to attend flight school, and he lived with Match and her family there before being sent into the throes of the war. So thankfully, he and Madge's brother, Gerald, survived, although the same cannot be said for millions of other young men. But I digress. Um, after the war, when Madge returned from St. Louis with Olga in tow, Ewart began courting her, but Madge really had no intention of fulfilling any of the societal class and gender codes so clearly laid out for her. In fact, she defied all of these conventions and, well, she got a job. Yeah, she had been educated throughout her teen years and always dreamed of attending university. But without her parents' support, which they had no intention of providing, um, this pursuit was really impossible. Um, you know, she still loved to read and write, so she turned her attention to journalism and was relentless in her pursuit of a job, which she finally landed in 1920. Her first job, Cass, she was a receptionist for the British edition of Vogue magazine. And Madge would later tell a reporter, quote, I was never really that interested in fashion, but I wanted to be financially independent. And when Madge's father found out, he was so furious. He wrote to Madge's new employer demanding that his daughter was dismissed. And when Vogue refused to fire her and Madge refused to quit, her father cut her off and kicked her out. I was free, Madge later recalled, but I was terribly, terribly poor for a long time. I just want to say how topsy-turvy this is today, right? Usually it's your parents being like, you need to get a job. <laughs> get out of our house. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did Madge do? She basically threw herself into her work. And as one of only seven employees of British Vogue, it was a small operation at this time. It had really only been in existence for four years when she started working there. So the decision to print a British edition of the magazine came in the midst of World War I, when Vogue's publisher, Condé Nast, could not get issues of his magazine across the Atlantic. And let's be clear, while it was called British Vogue, it really was American Vogue at this point. It had the same covers and basically all the same articles, just different advertisers. And and the society pages were a little bit different, too, because they really included something America did not have, and that was royalty. Yes. Um, Madge's hard work did pay off. In a short time, she worked her way up from receptionist to typist to secretary, and then as the assistant to the editor, um, who was Elspeth Chomp Communal at the time. And Chomp Communal's influence on Madge cannot be understated. Madge later wrote, quote, in fact, I should never have become Madge Garland without her. Yeah, and Elspeth was a fascinating individual in her own right. I mean, how could you not be with a name like that? <laughs> it's really, try, try try saying shop communal. It's difficult. <laughs> I had to practice. I'm not, I'm not going to. <laughs> um, so Elspeth, her husband was a well-regarded painter, and he had sadly died in the war. Uh, but she remained well-connected to the artistic community, and she really introduced Madge to these people and to this different life. Um, no doubt fueling and feeding the intellectual and artistic curiosity that Madge had longed for for her entire life. Madge was thriving under Elspeth's tutelage when she got really, really sick. So sick, in fact, that her parents insisted on bringing her back under their care. Faced with losing the independence she so greatly valued, it would appear that Madge had only one choice. She sent a telegram from her hospital bed to that old family friend, Ewart, and it said, Come at once and marry me. 
and they both lived happily ever after. Yeah. Yeah. No, that did not happen. Yeah. We, <laughs> we, we saw that coming. <laughs> we'll learn all about that after a brief word from our sponsor. Welcome back. It was not long after marrying Uert, actually, that Madge left him for her boss, the newly appointed editor of British Vogue, Dorothy Todd. So 13 years Madge's senior, Dorothy was granted the editorship after it was vacated by Elspeth, who left to Paris to open her own couture house. Dorothy was actually herself newly returned from America, where she had spent six years at American Vogue, training for the position of editor-in-chief under the formidable editor-in-chief, Edna Woolman Chase. Another fascinating woman alert. Chase probably actually needs her own episode at some point. She has a wonderful memoir. Oh, yes. I wholeheartedly agree with that, Um, especially because her success story is Vogue's success story. The two are really inextricable. You know, she started at the publication in the mailroom in 1895, three years after American Vogue was founded. Um, And at this time, it was still a weekly society newspaper really targeted at an upper class readership. And it wasn't until after Condé Nast purchased the magazine in 1905 that it turned into a bi-monthly fashion magazine targeted specifically towards women. And when he did this, he appointed Chase as the managing editor in 1911. By 1914, three years later, she was named editor-in-chief. And this was a role that she maintained for well over 30 years. Together, Chase and Nast transformed Vogue into the recognized authority on fashion that it still remains today. And just how Dorothy came to Nast and Chase's attention and really how she came to the U.S. during the war is a bit of a mystery to me. I really couldn't figure that out. (laughs) Um, And actually, a lot of the circumstances surrounding Dorothy's background are in question as well. We know a lot more about Madge than Dorothy. Um, But we do know that Dorothy was born in London in May 1883, and her father was a wealthy real estate developer, but he sadly died when she was only nine years old. And over the ensuing years, her mother, who apparently was a gambler and an alcoholic, um, really proceeded to squander her children's inheritance. Um, Despite this, Dorothy was quite well-educated. Like Madge, she had an insatiable appetite for learning, and apparently she insisted on a tutor in Greek and Latin, and she learned to speak French while traveling with her mother along the coast at various gambling establishments throughout (laughs) her life. (laughs) Well, besides that, uh, little is known about her earlier life, except for the fact that in 1905, at the age of 22, she had a child, Helen, out of wedlock. And she raised Helen not as her daughter, but as her niece, claiming that she was the daughter of her brother who had died in the war. Dorothy did not even reveal the truth to Helen until she was a grown woman, for heaven's sakes. (laughs) Yeah, surprise. And, And, you know, the circumstances surrounding Dorothy's pregnancy are unknown, although her grandson, Oliver, who was Helen's son, um, was interviewed by Lisa Cohen for the book that we mentioned earlier. And having known Dorothy well and never imagining her to desire, much less invite a man's advances, her grandson thinks that it's possible that she was raped, possibly by one of her mother's many lovers, which is a very sad story. 
Yeah, and Lisa goes into it in a lot more detail than that, which we will not. Um, but I highly suggest getting that book and reading um, about it, um, about their story. So Dorothy's upbringing was volatile, to say the least. But despite these hardships, she managed to do quite well for herself. Uh, I mean, taking the helm of a fashion magazine was no small order. Nor was what she achieved during her short editorship. In her four years as editor-in-chief of British Vogue, she essentially oversaw the complete remapping of the fashion magazine, turning it into the modernist Bible of the who's who of the literary and artistic avant-garde. That this overhaul ultimately led to her firing in 1926, well, that just kind of speaks to how ambitious and groundbreaking this undertaking really was. Yeah, to say American Vogue and British folk, for that matter, was a bit stuffy prior to Dorothy, is perhaps an understatement. Expected, yes. Exciting, not really. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the most exciting things happening in World War I era Vogue, in my opinion, were the fashion covers produced by modernist fashion illustrators such as Helen Dryden and George Lepop. Unfortunately, the celebration of other forms of modernist expression was sorely lacking, uh, and really Dorothy's editorship changed that. And undeniably instrumental to the magazine's transformation under Dorothy was her girlfriend and right-hand lady, Madge. It is unclear exactly when the duo started dating, but it was definitely around the time that Madge went from being assistant to the editor to fashion editor of the magazine. And you might say coincidence? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but regardless of the circumstances uh, surrounding Madge's promotion, she, she proved her weight in gold, really. You know, later in life, Madge gave a complete credit to Dorothy with making her. She said, quote, I owe her everything. Everything. She had this gift for finding and sponsoring young people, and I was one of them. Yeah, and Woolman Chase said of Dorothy, quote, she had a gift amounting to genius for spotting winners. She was the first to show Cocteau's paintings in England and the first to publish Gertrude Stein's verse and photographs of Le Corbusier's uh, architecture. But integral to Dorothy's modernist mission was Madge, writes Cohen, what Dottie did for Madge, instructing her and lifting her into public view, the two of them and Vogue did for others, established and fledgling. Madge's contributions to the magazine extended well beyond fashion. She played an integral role in developing the magazine's artistic, modernist landscape, prompting their mutual friend and celebrated author Dame Rebecca West to write years later, quote, Together, these women changed Vogue from just another fashion paper to being the best of fashion papers and a guide to the modern movement in the arts. And you know what, Cass? Madge and Dorothy did this together. Yeah, so to the pages of Vogue came for the first time the work of artists such as Pablo Picasso, Henri Matisse, and Marie Laurencin. Much to the dismay of Edna Woman Chase, might I say, as we will learn, it's not a fan. She wrote, Fashion Miss Todd all but eschewed, and our service features seen in the shops, smart fashions for limited incomes, the hostess and beauty articles were given short shrift. And these I mean, let's be honest, these don't sound like the most interesting of articles, <laughs> were replaced with those written by modernist artists such as Gertrude Stein, Edith Sitwell, and Virginia Woolf. And it was at the suggestion of Stein, actually, that Madge went from Madge McCarg to Madge Garland, taking her husband or ex-husband's married name because it was a decidedly more formidable and memorable last name. 
And it was not that fashion was forgotten in the pages of British Vogue. Rather, it was integrated into Dorothy and Madge's modernist formula with articles such as modernist art applied to painted fabrics becomes increasingly popular in the mode. <laughs> That's a title. <laughs> and, and Madge's role was equally fluid, overseeing not only fashion photo shoots, but also those of the artists, writers, actors, and actresses that were featured in the magazine to whom she, you know, became not only a patron, but also a friend and sometimes even stylist. Says Cohen, Todd and Garland produced the magazine as if they were hosting a kind of modernist salon. Together, Madge and Dorothy met, befriended, and featured artists in the magazine such as Brancusi, Man Ray and Lee Miller, Marie Lawrenson, and many of the artists and intellectuals of the Bloomsbury Group that included Virginia Woolf and her sister Vanessa Bell. To many of these same artists, Madge served as both model and muse. She was photographed by both Man Ray and Cecil Beaton. And British Vogue published one of Beaton's first photographs, um, which was an incredible accomplishment for this young up-and-coming photographer who had received each new issue of Vogue, quote, as an event of importance. (laughs) I love Cecil. We will absolutely do an episode on Cecil sometime soon in the next few months. But uh, Cecil valued Madge as the epitome of chicness. And this was a fact shared by many of her other contemporaries who really thought her the embodiment of 1920s high fashion. Yeah, and I mean, she was actually being dressed by the creme de la creme of Parisian and British haute couture. And this included, among many, the sister of Paul Poiret, which I don't know if our listeners know, um, was herself an haute couturier. Her name was Nicole Group. Although Poiret would not, I don't think he was particularly happy about his sister's success. He never really mentions her. <laughs> um, but you, you might remember, dress listeners, from our Scaparelli episode that Scap also frequented um, the 1920s parties of Nicole and her husband, Andre, who was himself a well-regarded furniture and interior designer. Um, so perhaps our ladies cross paths. I mean, Madge would later include Scaparelli on the prestigious list of haute who had dressed her throughout her life, including Chanel, Dior, Patou, and La Mame. That the glamorous and fashionable Madge presented a striking contrast to her partner, Dorothy, was not lost on their mutual friend, Rebecca West, who compared Madge, saying, a slender and lovely young woman who could have been a model, to Dorothy, saying, a fat little woman full of genius. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) One friend who was a choreographer by the name of Freddie Ashton even went so far as to create a caricature of the duo. In his 1926 ballet, A Tragedy of Fashion, he based two of the characters on Dorothy and Madge. And according to Ashton, Dorothy's character, quote, dressed in a sort of lesbian-like fashion, smoked cigars, strode around the stage giving veiled orders, while Madge's character was a model, quote, delectable in pearl-buttoned pink satin. While the intimacies of Dorothy and Madge's relationship can never truly be known, visually at least, there's represented one of the so-called butch femme, quote-unquote, variety. Dorothy, like many of her lesbian contemporaries, including Radcliffe Hall and Romaine Brooks, two incredibly fascinating women, look them up. Um, While Dorothy and these women really countered the indoctrinated ideals of feminine dressing that lesbians such as Madge and also Hall's partner, Una Trowbridge, embraced. So Dorothy, for instance, had cropped slick back hair and she wore really kind of a uniform of sorts. She would pair blazers, ties, and collared shirts with simple skirts because even as transgressive as these styles were, women did not wear pants at this period. Yeah, 
And it's worth noting that this is the 1920s when the quote-unquote garçon look was very much in fashion. And conveniently, this trend toward a more masculine-inspired style of dressing, this provided a platform from which in women like Dorothy and others were really able to explore their gender identities more openly through their attire without adding public scrutiny that normally would have come with traversing such, you know, very, very clear and distinct gender norms. Yeah, and Dorothy was not actually as completely removed uh, from the world of high fashion as her uniformed attire might have suggested. She was the editor of a fashion magazine, after all. Um, Both her and Madge shared their professional expertise and connections with their friends and contributors, including Virginia Woolf, whose love-hate relationship with clothing and fashionable clothing in particular is actually quite extensive and fascinating. Yeah, fashion uh, really figures prominently in Wolf's published works and private diaries. Um, She wrote in 1925, quote, my love of clothes interests me profoundly, only it is not love, and what it is I must discover. You know, Cass, she, Wolf herself, was not a really fashionable person, and, and this led to a lot of her anxieties surrounding clothing. And she was equal parts fascinated by it and also repelled by it. And, and by extension, Madge and Dorothy, who, who figure quite prominently in her diaries and, and personal letters. Yeah, they really do in more than one way. Um, And on at least two occasions, uh, Woof allowed both Madge and Dorothy to dress her, albeit separately. So for her part, Madge commissioned Nicole Groot to make Virginia a copy of a suit that Madge owned and Virginia admired that Nicole had designed. Um, But it was really Woof's experience with Dorothy, which was caused for the most comment by Woof herself, an experience which caused her both excitement and fear. She noted in 1926, I tremble and shiver all over at the appalling magnitude of the task I have undertaken. To go to a dressmaker recommended by Todd, even she suggested, but here my blood ran cold with Todd. Perhaps this excites me more feverishly than the strike. And I guess this strike at the time was a huge deal that involved over 1 million striking coal miners. So, you know. It was a big deal. It was a hot news item. (laughs) Apparently this is as big a deal as going shopping with Tom. (laughs) Yeah, so Virginia's preoccupation with dress is most often expressed through her study of what she termed frock consciousness. You know, basically using clothing as a lens through which to explore negotiations of the inside and the outside, that you know, the private and the public spheres. And Cohen points out that Wolf's exploration is is related directly to sexuality and gender as experienced by women. Writes Cohen, quote, Wolf explores consciousness, the ways that it is gendered, and its relationship to clothing and consumption by linking it to the representability of lesbianism, itself a field and discourse about that individual that is newly visible. And, you know, Virginia herself, Cass, had many female lovers um, during this time of her life, including the famed poet and novelist Vita Sackville West. Yes, another British Vogue contributor. Uh, Which brings us to our next point, uh, that British Vogue was undeniably instrumental in setting a precedent for the merger of fashion and art, but equally significant to Dorothy and Madge's legacy is that many of these same modernist artists, writers, and luminaries were themselves queer. And we will talk more about that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. So among the many queer artists, writers, and intellectuals featured in British Vogue were Virginia Woolf, 
Vita Sackville West, Cecil Beaton, Jean Cocteau, Gertrude Stein, among many, many others. And that these men and women were also friends of Madge and Dorothy makes Dorothy's editorship even more intentional in its mission to bring the work of these avant-garde artists, avant-garde queer artists, to the fore. In his illuminating article, A Vogue That Dare Not Speak Its Name, Sexual Subculture During the Editorship of Dorothy Todd, 1922 to 1926, Christopher Reed points out the mistakes made by scholars before him who have posited that Todd and her contributors really collaborated to push forward a heteronormative agenda. Reed proves that a more subtle and nuanced reading of British Vogue reveals that not only did the magazine promote and support many queer men and women, its content possessed many homosexual subtexts. While not explicit, sometimes it's what one doesn't say, write, or paint. That is the most (laughs) revealing. And I could not actually get my hands on any of these 1920s issues of British Vogue. So Reed's extensive research was um, incredibly helpful and insightful into the specifics of the magazine um, during Todd's editorship. So Reed um, directs us to an article that appeared in the 1925 edition of both British and American Vogue that was penned by the British writer Mary Hutchinson under the pseudonym Polly Flinders. Okay, can we just talk about these pseudonyms? This is fabulous, Polly Flinders. (laughs) Yeah, the pseudonyms are fabulous. So this article is about the modernist artist and lesbian Marie Lawrenson. Um, a caption under a photograph of the beguiling artist by Man Ray dubs Marie a sister of Sappho. And Sappho is an interesting character. And I have to admit, I did not know this. She was a prolific Greek poet who lived in 7th to 6th century BCE. And she's known for her poetry that celebrated same-sex love between women. And while Sappho's sexuality is still debated by scholars to this day, Sapphists, as subsequently the term was coined, is is an exchangeable term for lesbians. Lesbian, the word lesbian itself, comes from a direct association with Sappho, as she was born on the island of Lesbos. The month prior, Vogue had published one of Lawrenson's paintings depicting frolicking females, and the caption noted the, quote, new poetic world of Lawrenson's imagination. Quote, there are slim girls, horses, dogs, birds, but never a man. An interesting fact, Cass, Marie actually refused to paint men. Um, and, and on the few occasions when she did, she actually charged astronomically more money. Good for her. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> stick it to them in their wallet. <laughs> yeah, and another sidebar among Marie's many lovers was none other than Nicole Gru, who I must say is a fascinating figure in her own right. This episode is chock full of these women. Um, she really deserves a lot more scholarly attention. And should I ever have the time to spend in France truly uncovering her legacy, I will. Oh, well, we're just going to have to add that to the list. Unless someone's already done it. And please inform us if they have, because <laughs> I am not aware. <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of other um, references to queer subculture that can be found in, in the magazine's cartoons. And Reed talks about this saying, quote, regularly lampoon courtship and marriage with an array of effeminate men avoiding or failing at heterosexual coupling. He provides this example of Jasper, who is featured in a, quote, Bachelor at the Bay cartoon, who declines invitations by four different women, choosing instead to stay home and read the controversial 1922 novel La Garçon, which was about a woman who has affairs with both men and women. (laughs) And another one of these um, cartoons, this one from 1925, was called A Rather Vicious Circle, and it features a teenage girl longing for her, quote, convent friend and the one person she has ever loved. 
The repeated presentation of actresses donning masculine costumes, such as the beautiful Varda and her dangerously attractive, quote unquote, tuxedo, or the famous cabaret singer Dora Strova, and the small neat coiffure is a favorite of the mode. Well, these images really introduce British Vogue readers, perhaps unknowingly, to new ideas about gender fluidity and by extension sexuality. And both of these concepts are integral to understanding 1920s modernism, not just in fashion, but also art and literature. And all of these are present within Dorothy Todd's Vogue. Although I must say, not everyone shared her modernist vision. No. Quote, the atmosphere she created was lofty and she was browsing happily in rich pasture, wrote Edwin Woman Chase. Speaking on behalf of herself and Nast, she continues on, unfortunately, from our point of view, it was the wrong one. <laughs> Basically, she's like, she's just over there like going off and doing her own thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it got her in hot water because in 1926, after only four years as the editor, Dorothy Todd was fired. Um, and this task was then given over to the magazine's manager, Harry Yoxel, who a few days later also fired Madge, or as he referred to her in his diary, Dorothy's maîtresse en titre, or favorite mistress. Jeez Louise. As we've previously shown, Chase acknowledged the undeniable role that Dorothy played in bringing modernist art to the fore and into the Vogue publication, but it was not a formula Vogue was really interested in promoting at all. <laughs> Chase writes, in the 20s, the British edition was never intended to be the advanced literary and artistic review she was turning out. Chase and the magazine's business manager, Harry Yoxel, both attest to the substantial loss of profits under Dorothy's stewardship. But as Reed points out, any number of factors in the post-World War I economy could have contributed to this. You know, another factor might be the general strike cast that you mentioned earlier, and also a general decrease in wages across Britain. And Dorothy confronted this challenge by cutting the price of the magazine in half and promoting money-saving measures within the publication itself. But, but even after Chase installed herself at the magazine's helm to, quote, get our British edition back into the Vogue formula, the magazine didn't really turn a profit until around 1929. Yeah, but Dorothy had no intention of going away quietly. She immediately sued Condé Nast for breach of contract, something two Vogue contributors, Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville-West, discussed in its aftermath. Vita wrote to her husband in 1926, talking about um, a meeting that her and Virginia had had, quote, We sat in the meadow and discussed the future of Miss Todd. She has got the sack from Vogue, which, owing to being too highbrow, is sinking in circulation. Nast, when threatened with an action, reported that he would defend himself by attacking Todd's morals. So poor Todd is silent since her morals are of the classic rather than the conventional order. Well, Vita surmises that Nast threatened to expose Dorothy's sexuality. As Cohen points out, it is also possible that he was threatening to expose Dorothy's illegitimate child. Either way, Dorothy withdrew her lawsuit. And Edna Woman Chase writes, quote, I heard that Todd had girded her loins and had dramatically announced that she would fight me to the death. Actually, I think she must have been whistling in the dark, because when we met on the field of battle across the office desk, the tune, while no love song, was not very martial either. <laughs> this is so messed up. Can I just say, like, that Chase and Nast did this and bro broke her contract and then just thought it was okay to not pay her what was due. It's just messed up. Yeah. And also essentially blackmailed her. <laughs> yeah. So there's with that her sexuality too. and her, yeah, her daughter. Like, come on. 
Yeah. And, you know, that wasn't very nice of them, but, but <laughs> there were a lot of other people that had not very nice things to say about Dorothy either in the years following her dismissal, especially Virginia Woolf, who referred to her as a, quote, truculent, determined old brute, fatter and more snouted than ever, very disillusioned and commercial and without ideals. Jeez. <laughs> And Virginia made these comments in a letter to her sister shortly hearing of Madge and Dorothy's plans to start their own quarterly fashion magazine together after they were both fired from Vogue, that Virginia had had the women to lunch and would continue to orbit in the same social circle of Dorothy's Vogue contributors and Dorothy and Madge herself speaks to the couple's continued presence and relationship with this artistic avant-garde community if not their commercial successes necessarily. And I mean, due to the lack of money, Dorothy and Madge's magazine never came to fruition. And after publishing a book, The New Interior Decoration, with Raymond Mortimer in 1929, I mean, Dorothy's career basically never recovered. Yeah, and in the aftermath of their firing, Madge and Dorothy's relationship was on volatile ground. You know, Madge was confronted with the realities of Dorothy's careless management of money and also her alcoholism. She said, quote, she had been running up bills on a scale that was almost lunatic. And and the worst part of this, um, it was a bit of deception because Madge discovered um, that Dorothy had been using her name, Madge's name, to gain credit at establishments without her knowledge. You know, and, and Madge basically set about settling her debts and, and the couple eventually parted ways. However, said Madge of their relationship, other people will say she ruined my life. She ruined my marriage. She gave me a terrible time to hell. I have no regrets at all. She fostered me and helped me. She opened many doors. I repaid that debt in full because I supported her later in life, but I owed her more than I could ever repay. And indeed, along with Dorothy's daughter and grandson, Madge helped support Dorothy for the rest of her life. Uh, Dorothy ran a gallery briefly in the 1930s, and then she worked as a social worker during World War II. Um, she translated and, and published two books in 1947 and 1953, but never again would she regain entry into the management level in any way in, in the publishing world, despite her repeated efforts. And as for Madge, she went on to a prolific career in fashion, actually returning to Vogue as a fashion editor in 1933, only to be fired by Yoksel again. In 1940. <laughs> vicious circle. Vicious circle. Uh, but that did not seem to deter her determination. You know, during the 1930s, she was one of the founders of the London Fashion Group, which is an organization dedicated to promoting English fashion design, um, something that became especially pivotal during World War II. During the war, she went to America, actually, to study um, Americans' use of synthetic materials and um, the country's thriving ready-to-wear industry. And by doing so, she, she really kind of um, lent some advancement to Britain's fashion industry by introducing critical technologies and, and manufacturing methods such as standardized sizing. Yeah, and in post-war Britain, she emerged as a recognized fashion authority, a sought-after textile and fashion consultant, as well as a lecturer on fashion, and she really appeared regularly on radio and TV. And in 1948, she was hired to teach at the Royal College of Art, where she helped to establish England's first degree program in fashion design. Um, so really pivotal in that aspect. And resigning in 1956, Madge went on to publish a number of books on fashion history. And my favorite quote from one of her lectures is, Quote, fashion is both ephemeral and personal. 
It cannot be preserved. At most, the husk of a garment is left, a sloughed off, empty skin. Each dress may be said to die with its wearer. Ah, yikes. That's sad and sweet at the same time. <laughs> the ever-fashionable Madge died in 1990 at the age of 92, far outliving her one-time love, Dorothy Todd, who died in the mid-1960s. And while the women ultimately separated, their brief reign at British Vogue their legacy still survives to this day. Reed writes that, quote, Todd ultimately failed in her ambitious effort to create a magazine that broke the boundaries and protected, and still to a large extent, protect, art from fashion, intellectuals from popular culture, masculinity from femininity, and heteronormativity from queerness of all kinds, end quote. In other words, Dorothy and by extension Madge were women that were far ahead of their time, Cass. Oh, absolutely. Because today magazines, including Vogue, more so its sister publication, W Magazine, but also Days and any other number of publications, pride themselves on blurring the lines between art and fashion, while you have others like photographer Tim Walker, actress Tilda Swinton, or fashion curator, historian, and performance artist Olivier Sayard have erased these distinctions completely. Um, Imagine Dorothy's legacy is alive and well, as is a thriving LGBTQ community of artists, writers, fashion designers, publishers, I mean, millions of people around the world who no longer have to hide who they are or who they love. And that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the LGBTQ legacy in your own closet next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And we really do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at Works who makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Bye.